Hello, this is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the June 9th, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Will Wildfires Like These Become the New Normal? Subheading, Canada's devastating fires and toxic smoke might not recur every year, but the heat from climate change increases the risks of a wide range of disasters. By Somini Sengupta. With so much toxic wildfire smoke moving across the Canadian border and upending life across the eastern United States, it raises a troubling question. Will there be more of this in the years ahead? And if so, what can be done about it? First, let's take a step back. Global average temperatures have increased because of the unchecked burning of coal, oil, and gas for 150 years. That has created the conditions for more frequent and intense heat waves. That extra heat in the atmosphere has created a greater likelihood of extreme, sometimes catastrophic, weather all over the world. While that doesn't mean the same extremes in the same places all the time, certain places are more susceptible to certain disasters by virtue of geography. Australia could see more intense drought. Low-lying islands are projected to experience higher storm surges as sea levels rise. In places that become hot and dry, wildfires can become more prevalent or intense. The unifying fact is that more heat is the new normal. The best way to reduce the risk of higher temperatures in the future, scientists say, is to reduce the burning of fossil fuels. There are also many ways to adapt to hotter weather and its hazards. Eastern Canada, which erupted in extraordinary blazes, is projected to be wetter on average, especially in the winter. The projections are less clear for summers, when soil moisture is important for creating fire conditions, according to Park Williams, a climate scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. Eastern North America is also projected to become much hotter, with many more days when the maximum temperature will climb above 35 degrees Celsius, or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So, in a dry year, the extra heat is likely to aggravate fire risks. That's what happened this year in parts of Quebec. Snow melted early. Spring was unusually dry. Trees turned to tinder. The northeastern United States is also projected to be wetter in the coming years. But as Ellen L. McRae, the Eastern Regional Climate Services Director at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said, quote, We have also been experiencing seasonal droughts more often, in part due to increasing temperatures, changing precipitation patterns, and loss of soil moisture, end quote. As for air pollution, she said, Wildfire smoke from the west, even dust across the Sahara, can travel across the globe to the United States, bringing with it hazardous particulate matter, according to the latest National Climate Assessment, published in 2018. Quote, From a human health perspective, we are concerned about the frequency and duration of such smoke events, end quote, said Leslie Ann Dupigny-Garot, a climate scientist at the University of Vermont who led the report's northeastern U.S. chapter. First, 
heat. By 2035, according to the National Climate Assessments, average temperatures are projected to increase by more than 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, from the pre-industrial era. That's larger and earlier than the global average. Rising average temperatures increase the chances of more frequent and intense heat waves. That's especially risky for people who work outdoors or who cannot afford air conditioning. Second, for coastal areas of the Northeast, there's the risk of sea level rise. That means flooding dangers affecting millions of people. Cities have long been warned to prepare by improving drainage, opening up floodplains, planting shade trees, and encouraging better insulation for buildings. In the southeastern United States, climate models indicate, quote, increased fire risk and a longer fire season, end quote. Fires ignited by lightning, as opposed to humans, are projected to increase by at least 30 percent by 2060, the National Climate Assessment said. In western states, the wildfire season is already longer because of higher temperatures, drought, and earlier snowmelt. By mid-century, the assessment concluded, the area burned there could at least double. California could get a break this year because of a wet winter and spring, but not necessarily the Pacific Northwest. Dr. Williams, the climate scientist, said that, quote, if a major heat wave occurs in that region this summer, I expect that fuels will be plenty dry to sustain large fires, end quote. Most fires in Quebec appear to have been started by lightning. Elsewhere, such as in the western United States, human carelessness and the mismanagement of aging power lines have led to catastrophic fires. Both are fixable problems. Fire experts say that the mechanical thinning of forests, as well as prescribed burns, the intentional burning of underbrush, can also reduce the spread of wildfires, but with risks. Some things that protect people from heat also help protect from wildfire smoke. Leaky, poorly insulated buildings are as hazardous on hot days as they are in smoke. The most efficient way to keep temperatures from rising further is to reduce the combustion of fossil fuels. They are the drivers of heat and its hazards. Heading. Boris Johnson resigns from Parliament. Subheading. The former Prime Minister quit after getting a confidential report about whether he had lied to lawmakers about lockdown-breaking parties. By Stephen Castle and Mark Landler. Britain's former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, abruptly resigned his parliamentary seat on Friday, another dramatic twist in the career of one of the country's most flamboyant and divisive politicians. Mr. Johnson has been under investigation from a committee of the House of Commons that was looking into whether he had lied to Parliament over lockdown-breaking parties in Downing Street during the COVID-19 pandemic. On Friday, having received a confidential copy of their findings, he accused the committee of attempting to drive him out, adding, quote, They have still not produced a shred of evidence that I knowingly or recklessly misled the Commons, end quote. The committee had the power to recommend a sanction that could have led to Mr. Johnson being forced into an election to hold on to his constituency just outside London, a contest 
he might well have lost. Instead, the former prime minister preempted that prospect by quitting. His decision means that there will now be a by-election in the constituency, but one he says he will not contest. Mr. Johnson had made little secret of his ambition to win back the job of prime minister, and holding a seat in parliament is a prerequisite of doing so. But it remained unclear whether this was a permanent departure from the House of Commons for Mr. Johnson, who once before resigned a seat to become London mayor, then returned to represent a different constituency. Mr. Johnson was forced out as prime minister last July, but he has continued to cast a shadow over British politics in the last year, putting himself at the center of disputes over his handling of the pandemic and the accounts he gave to Parliament about the parties held at Downing Street during lockdown. While the contents of the committee's report were not clear, Mr. Johnson's decision suggested that it would recommend more than a 10-day suspension, which could trigger an election for his seat. Appearing before the Parliamentary Committee in March, he acknowledged that he had made misleading statements in Parliament when he assured lawmakers that there was no breach of lockdown rules. He said he took full responsibility for the Downing Street gatherings. Quote, that was wrong. I bitterly regret it, end quote, he said at the time. In a statement on Friday, Mr. Johnson went on the attack. Quote, I am not alone in thinking that a witch hunt is underway to take revenge for Brexit and ultimately to reverse the 2016 referendum result, end quote, he wrote, referring to the departure of Britain from the European Union that he championed. Quote, my removal is the necessary first step, and I believe there has been a concerted attempt to bring it about, end quote. The unexpected announcement could signal the end of flamboyant career by a politician known for breaking rules and disregarding norms. But it could also merely be a twist in a career marked by frequent surges and setbacks. Quote, politically, he hasn't got that many friends, end quote. Jonathan Powell, who served as chief of staff to a former prime minister, Tony Blair, said of Mr. Johnson, quote, he has a few diehard supporters, but he doesn't get a sympathy vote for his troubles, and he doesn't have people behind him, end quote. Mr. Johnson left his options open in his statement by saying that he was, quote, very sad to be leaving Parliament, at least for now, end quote, while adding that he was, quote, bewildered and appalled, end quote, at being forced out in a manner he characterized as anti-democratic. Political analysts suggested that Mr. Johnson might be quitting in his constituency to run for a seat in a safer conservative seat, like one vacated by Nadine Dorries, a loyalist of Mr. Johnson, who announced Friday that she would not stand for re-election. He could also try to run in the more friendly constituency of Henley, which he represented once before. But even while serving as an elected lawmaker, Mr. Johnson has been making large sums as a speaker at events around the globe. And he may have calculated that, for now at least, it was better for his reputation to leave Parliament on his terms rather than risk losing his constituency in a public vote. Mr. Johnson prides himself on his record as an election winner, having won the London mayorality twice 
and achieved a landslide victory in the 2019 general election, and a defeat would have punctured that reputation. The prospect of a by-election in Mr. Johnson's seat of Uxbridge and South Ruislip will not be a welcome one for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, whose Conservative Party trails the opposition Labour Party in opinion polls. Defeat there would be a blow to the party's morale, as it readies itself for a general election that must take place by January 2025, but which is expected in the second half of next year. And Mr. Johnson's angry resignation will reawaken memories of the extraordinary political infighting that afflicted the government last year when Britain saw two prime ministers toppled in quick succession. Angela Rayner, deputy leader of the Labour Party, said Mr. Johnson was leaving in disgrace, adding, quote, the British public are sick to the back teeth of this never-ending Tory soap opera played out at their expense, end quote. For all of Mr. Johnson's ability to command headlines, his popularity has waned since he left Downing Street. Mr. Sunak, who served as Chancellor of the Etchequir under Mr. Johnson and succeeded him after the brief interlude of Liz Truss, has won credit for putting the conservative-led government on more stable footing. In his populist rise and litany of grievances as his fortunes have turned, Mr. Johnson's saga resembles that of Donald J. Trump, who was indicted on Thursday for obstruction of justice in his handling of classified documents. Mr. Johnson's legal problems are arguably less consequential than those of Mr. Trump, who faces multiple felony indictments. But his political fortunes may be less promising, at least in the short run, given Mr. Trump's healthy lead in the polls of Republican primary candidates. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. Heading. Their crypto company collapsed. They went to Bali. Subheading. The implosion of Three Arrows Capital, a cryptocurrency hedge fund, devastated the industry. Its two founders spent the next year surfing, meditating, and traveling the world. By David Yaff Bellany. Not long after his cryptocurrency hedge fund collapsed last year, spawning a market meltdown that devastated the industry, Kyle Davies got on a plane and left his troubles behind. He flew to Bali. As his company was liquidated and law enforcement authorities opened investigations on two continents, Mr. Davies spent his days painting in cafes and reading Hemingway on the beach. He also went sightseeing. He traveled in Thailand, where the fried oysters cost only a few dollars, and admired the local architecture in Malaysia. He posted a photo from a private zoo in Dubai, showing him stroking a tiger chained to a pole. In Bahrain, he attended a Formula One event in the run-up to the Grand Prix. One clear evening, on a rooftop in Bali, Mr. Davies took shrooms with a group of crypto colleagues. Quote, you look at the stars, and the stars are just, like, moving, end quote. He recalled over dinner last month at a seafood restaurant in Barcelona, Spain, where he was vacationing with his wife and two young daughters. Quote, you touch the grass, and it feels like, not like normal grass, end quote. Life as a crypto industry pariah, it turned out, 
wasn't so bad. A year ago, Three Arrows Capital, the hedge fund founded by Mr. Davies and Su Zhu, both now 36, imploded almost overnight. Worshipped by their hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu had been crypto superstars, known for their trading acumen and bold predictions about the market. They were fixtures on the crypto podcast circuit whose influence allowed them to borrow hundreds of millions of dollars from leading firms and make big bets on the future of the industry. When their hedge fund failed, a large swath of the industry was dragged down with it. The ensuing crisis drained the savings of millions of amateur investors and plunged other companies into bankruptcy. But by their own account, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu have been thriving. They left Singapore, where Three Arrows was based, and traveled around Asia, effectively taking the summer off. Mr. Davies started meditating. Mr. Zhu played video games and found a surf instructor. His old crypto associates were bad-mouthing him in the press, but he made new friends, a mix of surfer types and UFC fighters. Quote, they had a lot of empathy and sympathy for me, end quote, Mr. Zhu said from his luxury home in Singapore. Quote, they got defeated in a big fight, lose sponsorships or whatever, and everyone's crying. But then the fighter himself, his mind has already passed to the next fight, end quote. After the crypto industry crashed last year, erasing more than $1 trillion from the market, some of the business's leading figures were held to account. Cheng Pen Zhao, the chief executive of Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, is under criminal investigation and facing a lawsuit from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the FTX exchange, is under house arrest at his childhood home in Palo Alto, California, awaiting trial on fraud charges. Do Kwan, the South Korean entrepreneur who created the failed Luna cryptocurrency was apprehended in Montenegro this spring after dodging the authorities for months. Yet many other top executives who gained wealth and status by marketing crypto to the masses have avoided serious repercussions. They have cashed out early, invested in real estate, or holed up in tax havens. The Three Arrows founders are two of the most prominent examples. They are still living comfortably after managing a fund that oversaw more than $4 billion at its peak. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu declined to provide an estimate of their total wealth, but said they had saved enough over the years that they did not need to work again. Neither was willing to apologize for the collapse. Three Arrows owes its creditors $3.3 billion. The firm was registered in the British Virgin Islands, and its court-appointed liquidators there claim that Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu have refused to cooperate in the recovery process. In October, Bloomberg reported that federal regulators in the United States were investigating whether Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu had misrepresented their finances to Three Arrows investors. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu maintain that they did nothing wrong. They said they had faced death threats, but pointed out that no government agency had sued them or sought their arrests. 
A friend recently asked Mr. Davies whether he felt any remorse. Quote, remorse for what? End quote. He said he had replied. For the past few months, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu have been planning a comeback. In April, they unveiled Open Exchange, a marketplace for traders who lost money in last year's crypto implosions. Customers will be able to buy and sell claims to the bankruptcy estates of defunct crypto firms like FTX and possibly Three Arrows itself. In pitch documents sent to investors in January, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu codenamed their new company GTX, an alphabetical successor to Mr. Bankman-Fried's failed exchange. Quote, I just thought it was very funny, end quote, Mr. Zhu said. Subheading, a crypto supercycle. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu have lived parallel lives. They grew up in the northeastern United States and went to high school together at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. They became business partners in the mid-2000s while undergraduates at Columbia University. The summer after their freshman year, they traveled to Buenos Aires and set up shop in a cafe, offering to teach local workers how to play online poker and then stake them some money in return for a cut of their winnings. But their plan to create an army of South American card sharps had a fatal flaw. Neither of them spoke Spanish. They had wrongly assumed that working-class Argentines would understand English. After graduating from Colombia, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu worked overlapping stints at Credit Suisse before founding Three Arrows in 2012 when they were in their mid-twenties. They started out trading financial products tied to foreign currencies, but switched to crypto around 2019, as the market was emerging from a major slump. By 2021, as crypto prices surged to record levels, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu were managing billions of dollars, investing in crypto startups, and borrowing hundreds of millions to fuel even bigger bets. Mr. Zhu amassed 500,000 followers on Twitter, promoting his theory of a crypto supercycle destined to send the price of Bitcoin north of $1 million. Mr. Davies said he viewed the whole enterprise as little different from an online game. Quote, if you're very good at the game, you make a lot of money, end quote, he said. For a while, the bets paid off. According to media reports, Mr. Zhu spent $35 million on a good-class bungalow, a type of mansion popular among Singapore's financial elite, and settled in a quiet, tree-lined neighborhood of the island. Mr. Davies pursued an even more extravagant prize. Quote, I just told Sue, I'm going to get a boat. I need it. End quote. He recalled, quote, Sue was like, well, I need it too. End quote. And I was like, well, we need it together then, end quote. They picked out a super yacht designed by the Italian shipbuilder San Lorenzo with five decks, two retractable terraces, and a swimming pool. They christened the boat Much Wow, a reference to a meme popularized by investors in the joke cryptocurrency Dogecoin. The yacht became Mr. Davies' pet project. Inside, he planned to display a collection of non-fungible tokens, 
the unique digital collectibles known as NFTs. One floor was set to house a hydroponic garden, an addition requested by Mr. Zhu's wife, who is a biologist and an avid gardener. It was a heady time. Quote, I actually was looking at some islands as well, end quote, Mr. Davies said. But as he put the finishing touches on the boat, the crypto market was veering toward a crisis. In Singapore, Mr. Zhu and Mr. Davies had started socializing with Mr. Kwan, the creator of Luna. In February 2022, they bought $200 million of Luna tokens. Three months later, Luna lost all its value in a matter of days. The crash sent the price of every major crypto token plummeting. Many of Three Arrows' other bets started souring fast. As the market cratered, the founders' lenders ordered them to pay back hundreds of millions of dollars, money that Three Arrows no longer had. Behind the scenes, it was chaos. At one point, Three Arrows tried to borrow 5,000 Bitcoin, worth $125 million at the time, from the crypto lending firm Genesis to pay back a separate loan to a different creditor, according to documents filed in a court in the British Virgin Islands. Mr. Zhu said that account of their financial maneuvering was inaccurate. As the company's fate became clear, its lenders complained that Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu weren't responding to messages. The impact of the firm's implosion was immediate and sweeping. One of Three Arrows' largest creditors was Voyager Digital, a crypto bank that had lent it about $700 million. After Three Arrows defaulted on that loan, Voyager became insolvent, and the savings of millions of its customers vanished. In letters to the judge overseeing Voyager's bankruptcy, its customers described the impact of those life-changing losses. Quote, losing this money with no end in sight has been unbearable for my family, end quote, wrote one investor who had $30,000 stored on Voyager. Quote, I wake up most nights and just walk up and down the stairs, contemplating on my own mistakes, end quote. On Twitter, furious crypto investors blamed Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu for accelerating the market crash. Singapore's financial regulator reprimanded Three Arrows, saying the firm had provided misleading information to the government. In the media, one creditor accused the founders of lying about their finances and compared them to Bernie Madoff, the notorious Ponzi schemer. Mr. Zhu said his lawyers had assured him that Three Arrows' actions were, quote, whiter than white, end quote. By the time the firm was liquidated last June, he and Mr. Davies were in Bali. Mr. Zhu was learning to surf. Mr. Davies bought a paint set and started experimenting with still lifes. Quote, you eat very fatty pork dishes and you drink a lot of alcohol and you go to the beach and you just meditate, end quote, Mr. Davies said as he recounted his travels. Quote, you have these magical experiences, end quote. In late June, a court in the British Virgin Islands appointed liquidators at the consulting firm Tenio to take over the fund and recover the more than $3 billion that creditors were owed. For weeks, the founders' whereabouts were not publicly known. 
the liquidators complained in court that Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu were withholding crucial records. During a conference call in July, the founders appeared on Zoom with their cameras turned off and stayed silent as Three Arrows' new overseers repeatedly questioned them, according to an account that the liquidators gave in court. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu say they've cooperated with the legal process. But in December, a lawyer for the liquidators, Adam Goldberg, told a bankruptcy judge that the two men had failed to engage in delivery of information and assets required by their duties to creditors. Quote, the founder's behavior shows they have something to hide, end quote, Mr. Goldberg said. Subheading, making a comeback. After traveling in Bali and Dubai, Mr. Zhu returned to Singapore, where he has been living with his wife and two young daughters in the good-class bungalow he bought at the height of Three Arrows' success. Last year, the couple converted their yard into a permaculture farm, an elaborate system of lakes and gardens meant to replicate self-sustaining ecosystems in nature. It's home to ducks, chickens, and numerous types of dragonflies. One afternoon in May, a shirtless man wandered the rows of vegetation, snapping photos. Quote, one of the foremost experts on insects in Singapore, end quote, Mr. Zhu explained. Like many crypto evangelists, Mr. Zhu has a propensity for audacious pronouncements. He once predicted that disputes over crypto could cause a civil war in the United States, and he often frames his observations about the market in world historical terms. Quote, we're entering the age of chivalry, end quote, he said over dinner last month. An hour or two later, he added, quote, we're in the golden age of slander, end quote. As Mr. Zhu led a tour of the grounds, he stopped by the chicken enclosure to offer a disquisition on economic history. Quote, I've always been quite anti-capitalist, end quote, he said. He also insisted he was, quote, actually against yachts personally, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Much Wow Never Set Sail. The shipbuilder canceled its contract with Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu after they missed a final payment, according to court records. The yacht was sold to a new buyer, and Three Arrows liquidators are seeking $30 million from that transaction. The liquidators are also raising money through other avenues. Last month, So the Buys auctioned a collection of Three Arrows NFTs for about $2.5 million. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu insist they have handed over records to the firm's new management. But the liquidators say that they are still missing crucial material, and that the founder's lack of cooperation has doubled the cost of the recovery process. Quote, On the date of a recent hearing where they were supposed to appear, one of them seemed to be tweeting from a boat in Dubai, end quote, said Russell Crumpler, a senior managing director at Tenio, who has led the liquidation in the British Virgin Islands. So far, none of the government inquiries into three arrows have led to charges. A spokeswoman for the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the agency that reprimanded Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu last year, said it had been, quote, assessing if there were further breaches, end quote. Representatives for the SEC and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission declined to comment. 
Mr. Davies said he was ready to move on from Three Arrows by the end of last summer. Quote, I really spent so much time meditating in Bali that I'm really just pretty zenned out, end quote, he said. Within a few months of seeing their company implode, he and Mr. Zhu were discussing new business ventures, including a co-living scheme in Bali, possibly involving a crypto token. Quote, the waves, they just keep coming, end quote, Mr. Zhu said, reaching for a surfing metaphor. Quote, you can crash on a big wave. It doesn't matter. You can injure yourself and just heal and get the next one, end quote. Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu started to reestablish a strong public presence in November, around the time FTX failed. Suddenly, there was an even bigger villain in town. Mr. Davies went on CNBC, where he argued, without citing much evidence, that Mr. Bankman Freed of FTX had manipulated the crypto markets in an intentional effort to hurt Three Arrows. Mr. Bankman Freed denied the claim. A presenter asked Mr. Davies if he had moved to Bali because Indonesia has no extradition treaty with the United States. No, he replied. Quote, it's just a good place to be, end quote. Late last year, Mr. Davies and Mr. Zhu started their new company, Open Exchange, with Mark Lamb and Sudhu Arumagam, founders of CoinFlex, a crypto firm that went under last year. The business has had a rough start. Some companies listed as investors on Open Exchange's Twitter account have denied any involvement. A financial regulator in Dubai said Open Exchange was operating without a license. Mr. Zhu said he was tuning out the criticism. On Twitter, he responded to a negative article in the Wall Street Journal by quoting John F. Kennedy. Quote, we chose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, end quote. Quote, I've already created 75 jobs, end quote, he said over dinner in Singapore. Quote, at least these people like me, end quote. This month, Open Exchange unveiled its own cryptocurrency called OX, like the animal. The price shot up over a couple days. Quote, I'm getting early 3AC vibes all over again, end quote, Mr. Davies wrote on Twitter on Tuesday. Quote, nothing compares to the energy of a startup, end quote. Privately, Mr. Davies has been encouraging Three Arrows creditors to trade their bankruptcy claims on open exchange. In January, he invited creditors to an, quote, ad hoc 3AC creditor meeting, end quote. But on the call, Mr. Davies spoke the entire time, according to two people familiar with the matter. He ended the session just as someone was trying to ask a question. In Barcelona last month, Mr. Davies seemed relaxed and spoke glowingly of the, quote, amazing cafes, end quote, in Las Ramblas, a busy thoroughfare that cuts across the heart of the city. One Saturday night, he ate a late dinner at El's Pescadores, a seafood restaurant near the beach, ordering oysters, croquettes, local wine, and three rounds of whiskey. By the end of the meal, Mr. Davies was rattling off business ideas. In Dubai, he said, he has made inquiries about opening a chicken restaurant, possibly in the form of a cloud kitchen with no storefront. For a while, 
he and Mr. Zhu considered making a film about Do Quan and the collapse of Luna. Quote, Our idea was basically that we could do an empathy piece, end quote, he said. Quote, We had a whole team that was going to produce it at Sundance or whatever, end quote. Mr. Davies has also thought about getting into the artificial intelligence industry. Quote, I would like to believe that I can create two more businesses, end quote, he said. Quote, but I'm also okay with the idea that I'm fully retired at this point, end quote. He left the restaurant at midnight, strolling down a busy street lined with outdoor bars, where murmurs of late-night conversation echoed in the distance. He was beaming. Quote, if anyone has any problems, end quote, Mr. Davies declared, quote, just go to Bali, end quote. Then he turned, swaying slightly, and walked into the night. Heading. George Santos says his family helped bail him out. Just don't ask who. Subheading. Mr. Santos, a New York representative, said his relatives had helped guarantee his bail, but asked a judge to keep their name sealed out of privacy concerns. By Grace Ashford and Michael Gold. Representative George Santos on Friday appealed a federal magistrate judge's decision ordering the release of the names of the people who helped bail him out of federal custody, suggesting that the individuals were family members. The identities of Mr. Santos's guarantors have been the subject of intense interest to both the news media and the House Ethics Committee, which last month requested that Mr. Santos disclose their names so it might assess whether the $500,000 bail guarantee violated House ethics rules regarding gifts. In papers filed with the Eastern District of New York on Friday, Mr. Santos's lawyer, Joseph Murray, argued that Mr. Santos had not violated ethics rules, citing an exception for family members and implying that the guarantors fell into that category. Mr. Santos has argued that releasing the individual's names would subject them to attacks and harassment. Quote, Defendant has essentially publicly revealed that the Shuritors are family members and not lobbyists, donors, or others seeking to exert influence over the defendant, end quote. Mr. Murray wrote in his motion, which came days after Judge Anne Y. Shields ordered that the names be unsealed. It remains to be seen how his appeal before Judge Joanna Seibert will be received. Mr. Santos, a Republican representing parts of Long Island and Queens, is facing 13 felony counts including money laundering and wire fraud. He has pleaded not guilty. A group of media organizations, including the New York Times, requested last month that the identities of the people who guaranteed Mr. Santos's bail bond be unsealed. The coalition contended that the names of those individuals were a matter of public interest, particularly given Mr. Santos's position in Congress and the possibility that the bail arrangement could constitute an improper political gift. In a motion filed on Monday, Mr. Murray shared a response he wrote to the Ethics Committee's questions about bail, in which he pointed to House ethics rules that permits gifts from family members. At the time, it was not clear whether he was referring to some or all of the sureties. In Friday's motion, he was more explicit. 
Mr. Murray said that he would not oppose a targeted unsealing that would confirm to the public and to House investigators that Mr. Santos's guarantors were family members, without fully revealing their names or exact relationships to Mr. Santos. Though the suretors did not hand over actual money, they will be on the hook for the $500,000 if Mr. Santos flees prosecution. And while the Ethics Committee has not issued specific guidance on bail bonds, experts suggested that the arrangement could run afoul of house gift rules if the sureties were not immediate relatives, spouses, extended family, or in-laws. Mr. Santos, 34, has a younger sister, Tiffany Santos, who lives in New York and has been supportive of her brother's political career. Ms. Santos drew her own headlines after donating thousands of dollars to her brother's campaign, despite owing tens of thousands of dollars in back rent. Ms. Santos also served as the president of a New York State PAC called Rise and Why, which Mr. Santos promoted and whose handling of funds has raised questions. His father, Gersino Dos Santos Jr., also lives in New York. On contributions to his son's congressional campaign, he has listed his occupation as painter, construction, or retired. Mr. Santos's mother, Fatima DeVolder, died in 2016 after a battle with cancer. Ms. DeVolder figured prominently in her son's campaign biographies, and many of his past claims about her, including ties to the September 11th attacks, have drawn significant scrutiny. Mr. Santos has also said that he has a husband, whom he named in a 2020 interview as Matthias Gerard, and that the two married in November 2021 on Long Island. In his motion, Mr. Murray again said that one of Mr. Santos's initial three suretors had already dropped out amid the intense media interest, and that he was at risk of losing the remaining two if their identities were released. Were that to happen, he argued, Mr. Santos, quote, may be subject to more onerous conditions of release or may be subject to pretrial detention, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Battles Rage as Ukraine Tries to Retake Russian-Occupied Territory. Subheading, Military Analysts and U.S. Officials said it was too soon to judge the success of Ukraine's offensive, which is looking for weaknesses to exploit in the face of fierce resistance. By Andrew E. Kramer and Eric Schmidt. Intense fighting raged across a wide swath of southeastern Ukraine for a second day on Friday, as Ukrainian forces attacked occupying Russian troops in multiple locations, while military analysts and U.S. officials cautioned that it was far too early to gauge the success of Kiev's offensive. Both sides were grappling with severe flooding caused by the destruction of a major dam on the Dnipro River, but east of there, the fierce combat indicated that Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive against the Russian invasion was underway, according to analysts and Western and Russian officials. Two senior U.S. officials, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive military operations, confirmed that Ukrainian troops had, as expected, suffered casualties and equipment losses in the early fighting, but said that classified assessments quantifying the losses were still being developed. 
there is no information available on the Russian losses, but attackers typically suffer heavier initial casualties than dug-in defenders, and analysts warned that breaking through the Russian lines would be difficult and come at a high price. The Russians have constructed layers of formidable defenses, with trenches, bunkers, minefields, concrete tank obstacles, and gun emplacements, and a flat ground leaves advancing troops vulnerable to Moscow's artillery and air power. Videos and photos posted by pro-war Russian bloggers and verified by the New York Times show that at least three German-made Leopard 2 tanks and eight American-made Bradley fighting vehicles were recently abandoned by Ukrainian troops or destroyed. The Pentagon on Friday announced another round of military aid to Ukraine, this time worth $2.1 billion, including air defense missiles and artillery shells. Both warring countries gave positive-sounding but vague assessments that offer minimal detail about the battle. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine said in a video address on Thursday night that his forces were achieving step-by-step -step results, but did not say what those results were, and the Ukrainian military said on Friday that the, quote, enemy remains on the defensive, end quote. President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia said on Friday at a public appearance in Sochi, Russia, that Ukraine's counteroffensive had begun, as evidenced by its use of strategic reserves. Ukraine's military had not made progress, he said, but still had offensive potential. Pentagon officials and military analysts have been increasingly bullish on Ukraine's prospects for taking back much of the 18% of the country that Russia still occupies. Quote, this isn't something you judge based on a few days of fighting, end quote. Michael Kaufman, the director of Russian studies at CNA, a research institute at Arlington, Virginia, said in a Twitter message on Friday, quote, the offensive will play out over weeks and likely months, end quote. The Institute for the Study of War, an analysis group based in Washington, wrote on Thursday evening that Ukraine had not yet committed all of the newly trained and equipped units it had prepared for the offensive, and was fighting in the Zaporizhia region against Russian units that were considerably stronger than those elsewhere along the front. The Ukrainians have attacked in several places in Zaporizhia and the adjacent Donchik region, looking for weaknesses to exploit and are expected to shift troops and equipment to concentrate on those vulnerabilities. Some of the heaviest fighting has been reported by officials on both sides near the town of Orekhiv in the southern Zaporizhia region. Analysts have long anticipated a major Ukrainian thrust there, pushing southward toward the city of Melitopol and the Sea of Azov in an attempt to cut into the land that Russia has seized. Zaporizhia is where Moscow has, quote, designed one of the largest defense systems in Europe since World War II, end quote, said analysts with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington-based research group, in a report released on Friday. The report, based on satellite data, says defenses there are more than six miles deep, more than double those erected in other regions. Beginning on Thursday, Russian pro-war bloggers and the U Russian military reported that Ukraine had unsuccessfully attempted an advance a few miles east of Orekhiv, near the village of Mala Tokmachka. 
Images posted by a Ukrainian brigade and verified by the Times show that Ukrainian troops were on foot in Lobkov, a settlement west of Orykiv. Ukraine was also attacking to the northeast in the Donetsk region, around the town of Velika, Novosilka, and the city of Bakhmut, which fell last month to Russian forces after the longest and bloodiest battle of the war. Ukrainian forces reported gaining ground on the city's flanks. This Ukrainian counteroffensive is expected to be one of the largest military operations in Europe since World War II, involving tens of thousands of soldiers and hundreds of tanks, armored vehicles, and howitzers, fighting in and around farm fields, towns, and villages. Each side has run low on munitions at times, with Ukraine relying on its western backers and Russia buying attack drones from Iran. The Biden administration on Friday released newly declassified intelligence on a drone factory Russia is building with Iranian help, saying that it could be an operation by next year. Further west, in the Kherson region, the two sides are separated by the Dnipro River, now much wider and surrounded by devastation after the destruction on Tuesday of the Kakhova Dam. That would make a Ukrainian offensive across the river much more difficult, but Ukrainian officials say that such an assault was not in their plans, and the dam breach will have no effect on the course of the fighting. A senior Biden administration official said that U.S. spy satellites detected an explosion at the Kakhovka Dam just before it collapsed, but American analysts still do not know what or who caused it. Separately, a Norwegian seismic monitoring foundation reported that its equipment in Romania had detected two explosions from the direction of the dam. There was a weaker one at 2.35 a.m. on Tuesday, and then a stronger one with movement equivalent to a magnitude 1 to 2 earthquake at 2.54 a.m., about the time that the dam broke, the group said. Experts say the dam, which was held by Russian forces, was probably destroyed by an intentional explosion within the massive structure. They say an explosion from the outside, like a missile strike, or a structural failure caused by earlier war damage and high water spilling over the top, were conceivable causes, but far less likely. Ukraine's government says the only plausible scenario is that the Russians, who were in control of the dam, blew it up. Its security service on Friday released an audio clip of what it said was an intercepted phone call, in which a man identified as a Russian soldier said, quote, it was our sabotage group, end quote, who destroyed it, and added that the damage was, quote, more than they planned, end quote. The recording's validity could not be determined. Russian officials have blamed Ukraine, offering varied scenarios but no evidence. Some commentators on Russian state television have celebrated the dam's destruction. The flooding has forced thousands of people from their homes on both banks of the Dnipro, washed away entire buildings, and clogged the river with debris and toxins. On the Russian-held side, officials said eight people were killed. On the Ukrainian side, five were reported dead and 13 missing. Ukrainian officials said on Friday that Russian forces had shelled areas where evacuations and rescues were underway, killing two people. Floodwaters were receding in the city of Kherson, but not downstream, near where the river empties into the Black Sea. Debris from the flood littered faraway seashores. Residents of Odessa 
more than 70 miles from the mouth of the Dnipro, reported seeing roofs of houses and dead animals floating nearby. Aid groups and Ukrainian officials warned that the flood had washed away many landmines, sending them tumbling toward the sea, and that other debris could collide with and detonate floating naval mines. The landmines, some of which have detonated, pose a lethal risk to people on or near the waters. Natalia Humaniuk, the spokeswoman for the Ukrainian military Southern Command, said that even seemingly innocuous-looking materials washing up on shores as far as Odessa could contain explosive devices. Heading, four missing children found alive after 40 days in Colombian jungle. Subheading, rescuers had been searching for the children, aged 13, 9, 4, and 1, ever since they survived a plane crash that killed the three adults on board. By Genevieve Glatsky. After 40 days in the Colombian rainforest, all four children who had been missing since the plane they were traveling in crashed on May 1st have been found alive, according to Colombia's president. Quote, they achieved an example of total survival that will go down in history, end quote, President Gustavo Petro said in a news conference on Friday night. When rescuers reached the site of the plane's wreckage last month, the bodies of the three adults on board were found, but there was no sign of the four children known to have been on the plane. In a case that captivated the nation, local indigenous communities from the remote region, along with the Colombian military, then began scouring the jungle for the children, aged 13, 9, 4, and 1. The children are weak and are receiving medical attention, Mr. Petro said. The Ministry of Defense said in a news release that the children were initially treated by combat medics from the Special Operations Forces that had been deployed in the search, but that they had been transferred to the military base in the city of San Jose del Guaviare, where they were in stable condition. They will be transferred to a military hospital in Bogota tomorrow to recover, according to the statement. Quote, we want to share the happiness of all the Colombian people with this true miracle that we have known tonight, end quote. The defense minister, Ivan Velasquez, said in a video posted to social media. Details remain unclear as to who found the children and how they were able to survive so long in the thick jungle, prone to heavy rains and home to jaguars and poisonous snakes. Quote, it's a real miracle. It's going to be news for years to come, end quote. Pedro Arenas, a human rights activist in San Jose del Guaviare, told the New York Times, quote, After 40 days, it is quite incredible news. So there is a lot of joy. There is really happiness. End quote. The children, members of the Huitoto indigenous community, had been traveling with their mother and an indigenous leader from the tiny Amazon community of Araraquara, Colombia, to San Jose del Guaviare, a small city in central Colombia along the Guaviare River. The pilot reported engine failure and declared an emergency before the plane disappeared from radar around 7.30 a.m. on May 1st. The Colombian Air Force and other branches of the military soon deployed search and rescue planes and helicopters, as well as land and river teams. Indigenous communities in the region joined the effort. Using a speaker that produces sound loud enough to be heard within a roughly mile-wide radius, they played a recording made by the children's grandmother in Huitoto, their native language, 
telling the children to stay in one place and that people were looking for them. Conflicting details about the case have confused and angered many Colombians. On May 17th, Mr. Petro announced on Twitter that the children had been found alive, and then the next day retracted the good news, saying that the nation's child welfare agency, the Colombian Institute of Family Welfare, had received incorrect information. Over the past few weeks, authorities said they had reason to believe that the children were still alive, pointing to footprints, diapers, and shoes found in the search. Quote, they fended for themselves. It is their knowledge from the indigenous families, their knowledge on how to live in the jungle, that has saved them, end quote, said Mr. Petro at the news conference. Quote, they are children of the jungle, and now they are children of Colombia, end quote. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 9th, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.